Hello! Today, I'll be discussing part one of some darker adventure films from the 1980s. I'll discuss a few topics on each film and go deeper into the score on each. This will be a multi-layered episode and I hope you enjoy it. Let Dark Adventures Volume 1 begin on Soundtrack Alley. your host Randy Andrews. Today I'll be discussing a few darker films from the 1980s that I wouldn't normally cover on my show. I'm only covering a few highlights of trivia from each film and discuss a few points regarding the score. I hope you enjoy it. First, let's discuss The Terminator from 1984. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he worked with guns every day for a month to prepare for the role. The first two weeks of filming, he practiced weapons stripping and reassembly blindfolded until the motions were automatic, like a machine. He spent hours at the shooting range and practicing with different weapons without blinking or looking at them when reloading or cocking. He also had to be ambidextrous. He practiced different moves up to 50 times. He wound up garnering a compliment in Soldier of Fortune magazine for his realistic handling of the guns on camera, whereas the magazine usually lampoons movies for their inaccurate depictions of weapons use. Arnold Schwarzenegger also tried to avoid Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean as much as possible since the Terminator was trying to kill them and not form connections. In the film... The name of the nightclub where the Terminator first targets Sarah was named Tech Noir after a film genre which James Camden coined himself in describing what category this film falls under after dismissing the notions that it was a mere horror or slasher film. Tech Noir films like Blade Runner and The Terminator combine an old-style grittiness of noir films with the futuristic elements of a sci-fi thriller. Cameron himself had the club built specifically for the film and had to turn away any local club-goers who thought Tech Noir was a real nightclub. The building still exists, but is now a jewelry store. Although stereophonic sound existed in 1984, the Terminator was filmed in monophonic. This was because during the production, the budget was so low to allow the filmmakers to get all the effects they wanted and still allow for the film to be shot in stereo. Although a stereo remix was produced later for the for the uh, Him Dale VHS release, it was not until MGM acquired the rights to the film that a fully recognizable 5.1 stereo soundtrack was created for the 2001 Special Edition DVD. 
The classic clank was made by Brad Fidel by hitting a microphone with a cast iron skillet. When Reese and Sarah escape the police station, Brad Fidel's score is was too intrusive for James Cameron's liking, so he asked him to tone it down a little. The main title song by composer Brad Fidel uses an odd time signature of 1316. This was simplified to 12-8 for the main title of the sequel, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. The Terminator is a soundtrack album that Brad Fidel composed and performed on a synthesizer for the 1984 film. Fidel described the film's music as being about a mechanical man and his heartbeat. Almost all the music in the film was performed live. The Terminator theme is played over the opening credits and during certain scenes at varying tempos, including a piano version during the love scene and a slowed down version when Reese dies. It has been described as having a deceptively simple melody line and haunting synthesizer music. It is a time signature of 13, which came about which came about about as Fidel experimented with the rhythm track on his music equipment. It was initially an accident, but Fidel found that he liked the herky-jerky propulsiveness. Fidel created the music for when Reese and Connor escaped from the police station that would be appropriate for a heroic moment. Cameron turned down this theme as he believed it would lose the audience's excitement. Factory Chase features an electric violin played by Ross Levinson. The track Love Scene is a softer piano-based version of the main theme that was described as bittersweet. The soundtrack to the film was released in 1984. The first six tracks comprise of the Terminator score. The second half performed by various artists such as Tennie, Kane, and Triangles contain a hard rock rhythm guitar, Pictures of You has an emphasis on synthesizer, and Jay Ferguson's hit songs. So today, what I'm going to play is some of the score music from the film, such as the main theme to The Terminator, the love theme, and the end credits final suite. The majority of the score is very discordant, and the action pieces are impressive. However, I don't want to dwell too much on the movie. I hope you enjoy this. Thank you. 
Next, I'd like to discuss Predator. According to an interview with director John McTiernan, the hole in the jungle appearance of the Predator was played by Jean-Claude Van Damme in a blue screen, actually red suit. Van Damme quit after two days, unhappy about being cast as an uncredited special effect, but can be seen as the Predator in If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It, The Making of Predator, which came out in 2001. The alien was scrapped, redesigned, and eventually played by Kevin Peter Hall, who was 7 feet 2 inches tall. Shane Black hated the glasses he was given to wear as Hawkins. He wanted to wear authentic military-issue ballistic glasses worn by actual troops in the field, but John McTiernan wanted him to look as geeky as possible. The sound editors called the Predator's shoulder gun the parrot gun because when it moved independent of the Predator while aiming, it reminded them of Peter Sellers with a rubber parrot on his shoulder. (laughs) That's funny. Because this was the first Predator movie, only the thermal vision and infrared vision was shown from the Predator's point of view. In Predator 2, it introduced many other vision modes, but with good attention to details, you can get hints that the Predator has different visual modes even in this movie. The Predator can also see and avoid the tripwires that are hidden everywhere in the forest which would actually not be visible if the Predator only used thermal vision. The Predator can also see whether the soldiers are armed, indicating the Predator has different vision mode to detect solid metal. Additional visual effects, mainly for the opening title sequence of the Predator arriving on Earth, were supplied by Dream Quest Images, which was used on The Abyss and then in Total Recall. Originally, Joel Silver wanted Michael Kamen to do the music for this film after collaborating on Lethal Weapon, but Kamen was unavailable due to working on Adventures in Babysitting. However, director John McTiernan recommended hiring Alan Silvestri after hearing his work on Back to the Future. Supposedly, Jerry Goldsmith was originally approached to score the film, but it was unavailable. Aliens was also cited as one of Jim and John Thomas's influences behind the film because about being space marines battling against and being picked off one by one by a deadly extraterrestrial creature. In Predator 2, Harrigan, which was played by Danny Glover, discovers the skull of a xenomorph in the Predator spaceship. The scene spawned crossover comic books, action figures, and video games of Alien vs. Predator in two feature films in 2004 and 2007. The 1994 game featured a character named Dutch as an homage to the character in the film. Additionally, Dutch in the film or in the game has a mechanical arm and is said to be a cyborg, likely a reference to Schwarzenegger's starring role in the Terminator series particularly the second film, which features a famous scene where Schwarzenegger strips the skin uh, from his left arm, revealing the robotic structure beneath. The movie's music theme is also used in the trailer for Ghost in the Machine. 
The theatrical trailer for Predator featured music from James Horner's compositions for Aliens. What a surprise. The specific music can be found on the Alien soundtrack as track one main titles. The trailer also features unfinished basic visual effects depicting magenta-colored heat signatures on some of the characters. With the score being composed by Alan Silvestri, he came off the huge success of Back to the Future. Now, Predator was his first major action movie, and the score was full of his familiar genre characteristics. Heavy horn blasts, staccato string rhythms, and undulating timpani rolls that highlight the action and suspense. Now, one of the key moments is that Silvestri returned even for the sequel, making him the only composer to have scored more than one film in either the Alien or Predator series. So for this film, I'd like to play the main title, Billy and Predator, and Aftermath, and then pick up and end credits. Predator is an impressive alien creature that shows up every few decades in cinema and is especially iconic. I hope you enjoy the suite of music.
Next, I'd like to discuss Total Recall. This was one of the last major Hollywood blockbusters to make large-scale use of miniature effects as opposed to CGI. It was one of the first major Hollywood blockbusters that actually used CGI, mainly for the scenes involving the X-ray scanner and have it look photoreal. Arnold Schwarzenegger was so impressed by how much dedication Sharon Stone had in training for her character role that he even referred her as the female Terminator. She was inducted into the Stunt Woman Association as an honorary member. The concept of Quaid being a physically buffed construction worker was suggested by Arnold Schwarzenegger himself. In early drafts of the script, Quaid was originally described as an average-looking accountant-type person. Because of this detail, when the movie was originally going to be produced by Dino De Laurentiis, he was adamant about not letting Schwarzenegger audition for the role of Quaid. It was only after Schwarzenegger convinced Mario Kaser to buy the script rights from De Laurentiis, whose production company went bankrupt. And then later drafts were rewritten to change Quaid's character into one more suitable for Schwarzenegger. So he got his wish. The miniatures used for shots showing the Martian geography were based on actual Martian photographs, which is really cool. Now one of the key elements of this film is that Jerry Goldsmith was to compose the film's score. Now, Jerry Goldsmith said that he had received some criticism about the movie's score, that the movie had no theme, which he strongly disagreed, stating that the movie did in fact have a theme, but it wasn't the kind of theme that people left the theaters whistling after. Goldsmith had modeled some of the movie's score after the score from Conan the Barbarian, which was composed by Basil Palladoris. The short story in which the, it was based was first optioned in 1974, and this was 16 years before the film finally was released. And both the adaption of the screenplay, which was written by Piers Anthony, and early drafts of the script had the main character's name, Douglas Quayle. The original Philip K. Dick story also had the character's name as Quayle also. The film was being made during the administration of President George Bush, in which Dan Quayle, <laughs> and it's presumed that was a reason for the change. Early, um, like Philip K. Dick's film Blade Runner, this has a false memories theme. Quaid goes to recall, gets a memory implant for a trip to Mars that never happened, and Lori tells Quaid, your whole life is just a dream. The film explores also the concept of memory manipulation. Now, with the score, Jerry Goldsmith did a 40 minutes of its release through Verez Saraband. Ten years later, uh, there was a deluxe edition score that showed a chronological order with additional cues that were left out, totaling a 74-minute score. With several Goldsmith scores, the film music was performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra. The score has been hailed as one of Goldsmith's best, especially as heard in the deluxe edition and commended for its blend of electronic and orchestral elements. 
So today I'll be playing The Dream, Where Am I, End of Dream, and A New Life. I really like Goldsmith's score in this film. Not a great fan of the film itself, but Jerry Goldsmith really amps the action up and does his best with industrial materials like he always is known for. I hope you enjoy it.
Next, I'll be discussing RoboCop. It was discovered that when in full costume, Peter Weller could not fit properly into the police car as he was too bulky. That's why most shots of him were of him exiting the car or preparing to get into it. For shots where he actually needed to get in the car, he only wore the top part of the costume and sat in his underwear. However, to maintain the illusion of the RoboCop outfit, he wears the entire suit while inside the car. Most shots show his robotic feet exiting the car first. Some 25 years later, after an internet rumor began to get funding for a RoboCop statue to be placed in Detroit, Peter Weller himself created a public service announcement to support the proposal. Eventually, a Kickstarter campaign was created and proved successful, as the 12-foot statue is now in production. Just kind of cool. Because the hands of the RoboCop suit were made of foam rubber, the car keys would bounce off Peter Weller's hand every time he attempted to catch it. Production took up to 50 takes in an entire day's worth of filming before they finally got the shot right. The special effects were generated by a Commodore Amiga computer. And, of course, the repeated line, I'd buy that from a dollar or for a dollar, comes from Cyril M. Cornblue's short story, The Marching Morons, which presents a similarly cynical view of an over-commercialized future that's desensitized to violence and war. A radio game show in that short story uses the line, I'd buy that for a quarter, as its signature phrase. Writers and producers were concerned that cops would be offended by their portrayal in the movie. On the contrary, they loved it. They especially enjoyed the scene where Robocop throws Bodeker through three planes of glass window while concurrently reading Bodeker an abbreviated rendition of his Miranda rights. The enforcement droid's voice is uh, that of producer John Davison. Its growls are of a jaguar and its squeals are of a pig. ED-209's body was based on the design of a Bell helicopter and an overall appearance is reminiscent of a line of toys named Robotech, which was based on a 1980s Japanese anime series, which all of you should check out. RoboCop's three prime directives, serve the public trust, protect the innocent, and uphold the law, are reminiscent of the three laws of robotics by the sci-fi author Isaac Asimov. The 1986 Ford Taurus was used as a police cruiser in the movie due to its futuristic design, and as May 2012, Robocop's Taurus is on display at the Branson Auto Museum in Branson, Missouri. The trademark phrase of Robocop, Dead or Live, You're Coming With Me, is actually uttered only twice in the film. Also, the Melting Man sequence was conceived by special effects makeup artist Rob Botanis as a two-stage effect, with increasing amounts of flesh melting off from Emil's bones in each stage. About three-quarters of McCrane's head and chest were covered in makeup appliances. This was a complicated process, and it really changed the way they did some special effects. The soundtrack score for the movie was, of course, composed by Basil Palladoris, he used both synthesized and orchestral music as a mirror 
to the man versus machine theme of the movie. The score alternates brass, heavy material, including the Robocop theme and the Ed 209 theme, with more introverted pieces of strings, such as during Robocop's homecoming scene. The music is performed by the Symphona of London, conducted by Howard Blake and Tony Britton. The soundtrack initially was released by Varez Saraband, containing highlighted pieces of the score in order to make it different that, from that that's heard in the film. The final four tracks were, on, were re-released later on CD. So sadly today we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. Hope you've enjoyed this brief look at some darker adventure scores from the 1980s. Next time, I'll show you more. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. You can find his work on xanderscores.com. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, at Soundtrack Alley. I'm on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and of course, Podbean. You can email me at SoundtrackAlley at yahoo.com. And lastly today, I'll play Rock Shop, Looking for Me, and Across the Board. These represent some of the best cues for Basil Palladoris in this film. I hope you enjoy them, and until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com.